Nobody questions things in this country anymore. Nobody wants to rock the boat. It's all bullshit, folks. It's all bullshit, and it's bad for you. But we believe them because they're pounded into our heads from the time we're children. Children should be taught to question everything, to question everything they read, everything they hear. You're listening to Question Culture History Edition with Brian, Steve, and Lornette. On these special History Edition episodes, we discuss American history using Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States, as our guide. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Q Culture. That's Q-U-E-C-U-L-T-U-R-E. There we share the links to the documentaries, articles, and books we talk about on the podcast. How's it going, guys? Hey, everybody. Hope everyone had a happy holiday season and is enjoying the new year. Um, shout out to Brian and Lornette. Another year of this podcast. Congratulations, <laughs> you know. Another year of people listening to your shit. <laughs> uh, anyway, Lornette. Hey, everybody. Lornette Vessel here. He, him, bad motherfucker. Whatever you want to say. Whatever you want to call me. Uh, check me out on Twitter. At Evolve Man LBV. Check me out on the Book of Faces, Lornette Vestal. You can check out my public Facebook page. And also, <clears throat> you can check out the Evolve Man podcast, me, Evolve Man website, LornetteVestal.com, um, where I get into some of the um, deep discussions and blog posts with other contributors, um, discussing some of the topics we talk about on Question Culture podcast and also uh, other uh, topics of the day. And also, it is home. Uh, the question culture podcast so if you want to listen to old episodes or catch up on new episodes uh, you can check it out on the evolve man project and last but not least if you are looking for um 2024 goals i'm gonna say 2023 2024 so happy new year to all our listeners uh check out um my debut novel even the faders and the second book aya and the alphas which is available wherever books are sold uh, get it for any bookstores, uh, the Great Satan, Amazon, wherever you get books, you can get Eve and the Faders and I and the Alpha, um, part of the Faders and Alpha series. And uh, hopefully um, next year there'll be another book out. So we'll see. What's up, Brian? Awesome. Not much. Um, just trying to stay positive with everything that's going on in the world. I did another um Took the holidays off, wasn't really paying attention to anything going on in the world, and then started up again with the new year and got pretty depressed pretty quick. <laughs> quick. But um, I don't know. It's it's uh, cool that we're going to be – so on this episode, we're basically talking about the, the 1920s leading up and then kind of the beginning of the Great Depression. And while I was reading the chapter, I was just reminded – or I just felt like the time period was very similar to now because you kind of have – two different realities for Americans going on. You know, it's referred to as the Roaring Twenties, you know, which makes it sound, you know, that it was a very wealthy, prosperous time. And while it, while it was for some people, you still had the underclass of workers that were struggling to get by. And as we're going to get into, that caused a lot of strikes to happen. And I see that very similar to now because in today, you know, you always hear from the media and from the Democrats that, oh, the economy's booming. Biden always talks about Bionomics. Everything's great. Stock prices, all this are up. Um, yet inflation is incredibly high and people, you know, all we, you know, actual working class people are actually hurting. And you see the growth of labor movements right now. Um, so in some ways, everything's changed. And in some ways, nothing has changed. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a 
I agree. Like with reading this, it feels like it feels different, but the same. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes me feel kind of sad. Yeah. It's interesting. My (laughs) wife and I were talking about. (laughs) My wife and I were discussing this uh, earlier today, and and we've been talking about this the last uh, few months about us basically living in a brand new gilded age. Um, So recently, in the in the black Twitter and black thread space, uh, the actress Taraji P Henson was talking about how she doesn't get paid as much as her, her white counterparts parts. So, you know, you're like, all right, all right, I, I can, I can understand that, you know, uh, actors, you know, should be like all workers should be paid fair, but then, um, herself and then, uh, the actress, Gabrielle Union, a very nice looking, uh, woman she is. Um, but, um, both of these women are far moved from reality of us peasants because when she was talking about the pay discrepancies, she was talking about how when they were filming the color purple, this is Taraji P. Henson. You know, we had rental cars and I had to drive myself to the set to Tyler Perry Studios. And it's like, you had to drive yourself. <laughs> um, all the horror. It's like, I don't want to be robbed in Atlanta. And I'm like, you think the peasants are going to... You're a famous actress. You probably have like some luxury SUV. Most And most people, especially black folks, this is a black-ass city, Atlanta. Oh, worst thing happen to you is some dude going to try to shoot a shot. Like, oh, shit, Taraji, what's up? I love you in Empire. That's about it. It may ask you for your autograph. And and then um, Gabrielle Union, um, another famous Hollywood actress who's married to a retired NBA player, uh, multi-time champion, Dwayne Wade, was like, I'm a black actress and I'll never be able to retire. And all you got to do is do a little good, quick Google search. And her and her husband, Dwayne Wade, uh, own multiple properties across the country. So what she meant is, if I retire, I might have to just live like a regular upper class person and not a super rich person. So I had to keep making these million dollar movies. <laughs> so I was like, it's, it's a new brand new Gilded Age. But my wife says it's a Gilded Age with spice because you have some some color, more um, people of color and some queer people who are part of the super rich. Hence why Ellen is hanging out with George W. Bush at the Dallas Cowboys game and be like, we might we, we we're friends, even though we have different values. It's like he. Ran a whole presidential campaign to say that gay people should not get married or they shouldn't exist. But like Michelle Obama hugging up with Bush, being like, oh, we might have different values. He committed fucking war crimes, him and his administration, and you're like hugging up with him. But I guess uh, Obama committed war crimes, so it's all one big happy family, despite the fact that liberals always be like, the Republicans are so different from us. But every time there's a Democrat that goes rogue, they always tend to side with Republicans, and that's rogue. They never like go far left do they hmm hmm i wonder why maybe because yeah, i'm trying part. to think there well, like is no example oh there's got to be something i don't know no no that fetterman guy is calling uh oh. harvard pinko oh, i'm like what the fuck you're using old school communist terms pinkos what a fucking piece of shit i i'm I glad i didn't fall for that 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 guy I see. Yeah, I know. I didn't either. And yeah, I'm happy. I <laughs> I saw somebody, uh, you know, as soon as he like made his hard right turn, somebody on Twitter was like, all right, I changed my mind. You have to wear a suit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and, and then AOC, you know, it's the, the, the third anniversary of the uh, Cracker Barrel Rebellion at the uh, Capitol when all the uh, MAGA types, you know, stormed the Capitol. They wanted to get the country back. Um, and install a dictator because they believe in freedom and freedom means having a dictator. But anyway, um, AOC was doing her online therapy about how they were all coming to kill her in particular. I haven't heard uh, it called because... the Cracker Barrel Rebellion yet. 
<laughs> but she she always makes it all about her because if you criticize her, you're you're either racist or you want to fuck her. Uh, and it's like maybe you're a politician and we can just criticize you, all of you, every single last one of you. But like what George Carlin said a long time ago about this shit, garbage in and garbage out. And bring it back to the chapter that we're Tika talking about the Roaring Twenties. I do like how he throws a dig at uh, President Coolidge, or uh, and he's like, "What is astute observation?" Things are bad for people out there <laughs> in the 1920s when it was like rich people living it up and then poor people are like starving to death. And yeah, let's get in, let's get into the chapter. All right. Yeah. So he starts the chapter um, referring to World War One. He said the war was hardly over. It was February 1919. The IWW leadership was in jail, but the IWW idea of the general strike became a reality for five days in Seattle, Washington, when a walkout of 100,000 working people brought the city to a halt. It began with 35,000 shipyard workers striking for a wage increase. They appealed for the support to the Seattle Central Labor Labor Council, which recommended a citywide strike, and in two weeks, 110 locals, mostly American Federation of Labor, only a few IWW voted to strike. The rank and file of each striking striking local elected three members to the general strike committee and on february 6 1919 at 10 a.m the strike began um and the importance the importance of this strike is how organized it was and how despite i kind of like it because it kind of you know as much as we do support union as we should that doesn't unions also have this issue sometimes where if it becomes very big and it 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 develops into its own political body with its own type of red tape. And sometimes the people who are at the top of the, you know, kind of the management of the union don't start to lose touch with the workers a little bit if it becomes too bloated. And I kind of like how he started out showing that, you know, not all the the higher ups in this in these unions and these labor organizations were in favor of doing such a huge strike. But all the workers were like, no, nah, like we're fucking doing this. You know, we need to. Um, so I thought it was like cool to kind of show that, you know, even though just, you know, getting to start a union is the beginning point, but then also that doesn't mean that the work's over. You still have to do things to maintain it and make sure that the leadership of the union is still representing the workers. Um, but then the, the awesome thing about this strike was the, how organized it was and, and how effective that made it. Um, Howard Zinn writes, the city now stopped functioning except for activities organized by the strikers to provide essential needs. Firemen agreed to stay on the, jo- on the job. Laundry workers handled only hospital laundry. Ve- vehicles authorized to move carried signs exempt by the general strike committee. 35 neighborhood milk stations were set up. Every day, 30,000 meals were prepared in large kitchens, then transported to halls all over the city and served cafeteria style. With strikers paying 25 cents a meal, the general public 35 cents. People were allowed to eat as much as they wanted of the beef stew, spaghetti, bread, and coffee. A labor war veterans guard was organized to keep the peace. On the blackboard at at one of the headquarters, it was written, The purpose of this organization is to preserve law and order without the use of force. 
No volunteer will have any police power or be allowed to carry weapons of any sort, but to use persuasion only. During the strike, crime in the city decreased. The commander of the U.S. Army detachment sent in the area told the striking committee that in 40 years of military experience, he hadn't seen such a quiet and orderly city. And I think that's good to point out. Well, one, it's good to show when you have mass strikes, it's good to be organized and to keep 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 a level of safety for those involved and to allow things that need to keep functioning functioning because if you shut down absolutely everything and people aren't able to get to the hospitals and and things like that then it's you're not going to be as effective and you'll turn people against your message rather quickly um and then i like how it represents that when you are organized like that it's funny like you know it's always anytime there's a protest the media is always like oh my god it was chaos everything you know like they act like the world's on fire but as people were saying during this protest things were actually going better <laughs> than than the city than the city normally functions yeah i think the most successful movements are the ones that actually provide alternative services to the like state services i guess like the uh black panthers for example would like have like education programs and distribute food just like this uh protest in seattle Uh, basically just provide services that either don't get provided by the state or poorly get provided by the state because yeah that is like a common complaint from like people who are pissed off about protests is like oh you're stopping traffic and i can't get to work and shit like that it's like you don't even like your jobs that's always funny it's like most people don't a lot of people hate their jobs, and they're like, you're going to stop me from getting to work or Starbucks. It's like, you don't fucking need a goddamn soy latte or fucking caramel macchiato that's filled with sugar, and you're going to just fucking go to your waistline. Um, and you don't even fucking like your jobs, and most of your jobs are not essential. So, what the fuck ever. Like, sorry you're inconvenienced for a little bit, uh, because people are protesting and, and that's the funny thing in, in the united states the uh whole idea is like we're patriots and we have to protest against tyranny and oppression and, and things that you know when the when the common man is when the common man is being inconvenienced or uh and, and injustice is being inflicted upon the common man um so-called democracy the common man has the right to um peaceful assembly according to the the very constitution that the powers that be wrote um uh, but when the people put that in action because democracy is in action and I know liberals think democracy is just voting for their, you know, particular sorry as Democrat every three or four years, every two to four years. Um, but democracy is an action and protest is part of that action in a true democracy. And what I like in this in this chapter, um, especially talking about this general strike, is how powerful it was. Um, and we saw a parallel during the uh, 2020 uh, pandemic when everything shut down. Um, the most important people were the essential workers um they and has my man immortal techniques this because we always like to quote immortal technique on this podcast um they may not run america or we may not run america but we damn sure make america run so i think that's any function society it's the people who are doing those essential jobs uh, whether that's making food um selling food at the grocery stores shipping food um sanitation services hospital services these are all like essential services that uh, basic, uh, basic essential services that keep a civilization functioning, functioning. Um, so, yeah, those Wall Street bankers <laughs> or any stockbrokers in um, in uh, Seattle at that time. Nah, fucking 
the world, you know, the world didn't lose any people didn't lose any lose any sleep when they weren't working. Um, it was just essential workers, and it was very very awesome that they were doing basically mutual aid. Um, and we saw a lot of that uh, as like history tends to tends to go in cycles. We had saw some of that during the 1960s and 70s with the civil rights movement, the Black Power movement, the women's movement, the uh, um, Native American movement at that time, the LGBTQ movement, a lot of uh, a lot of mutual aid and support of activists and people um, striking and protesting. Same thing we saw um, fast forward 2020. Same thing. Lots of mutual aid, uh, bail, uh, bail funds. Um, and hence why the powers that be since the uh, summer of Black Lives Matter 2020 have been coming down on a lot of these mutual aid and uh, bail uh, defense funds and stuff like that for activists because uh, they were at the vanguard um, during those protest movements. I think it was also important that the protest was peaceful, though, because, I mean, you're really not going to win anything that's violent against the state. Like, they kind of own violence in a way. So when you do something peacefully, at least you can gain the sympathies of other people who might be sympathetic to your cause, and you give less of a reason for the police or whoever to react violently and beat the shit out of people or murder people. And I think ultimately it is a more powerful method. Yeah. I mean, really, that's what Martin Luther King was all about, you know, um, being peaceful even in the in the face of violence. And, and And make no mistake, no matter whether you're peaceful or not, the state will react with violence. So the point of being peaceful is to just try and garner sympathy from the general public for your cause. Um, and, of course, this... This protest in Seattle uh, was no, or this uh, uh, um, strike. Yeah, this mass strike was was no different. Of course, the government uses the police to cr- uh, crush it, and then also um, private businesses, especially uh, I guess lumberjacking businesses in this situation, um, hire private mercenary thugs to go out and disrupt the protest. Um, and I like Howard's in kind of he uses kind of their own words against him because he was he was describing why the state uh, responded with this violence and he uses a speech from the mayor of seattle about the event about the strike uh howard zinn writes why such a reaction to the general strike a statement a statement by the mayor of seattle suggests that the establishment feared not just the strike itself but what it symbolized. The mayor said, the so-called sympathetic sympathetic Seattle strike was an attempted revolution. There was no, that there was no violence does not alter the fact the intent openly and covertly announced was for the overthrow of the industrial system here first, then everywhere. True, there were no flashing guns, no bombs, no killing. Revolution, I repeat, doesn't need violence. The general strike, as practiced in Seattle, is of itself the weapon of revolution, all the more dangerous because it's quiet. To succeed, it must suspend everything, stop entire life stream of a community, that is to say, it puts the government out of operation. And that is all there is to revolt, no matter how it's achieved. And, I mean, he's right that that's absolutely you know you know what they were attempting to do and that's and you can have you know revolution is always i think because the state loves violence so much it always tries to portray revolutions as like people with guns going out and and while it is that in some cases 
But really, it is an act of revolution to try and shut down the system for workers' rights because we don't live in a system that, you know, is made for workers and their rights. It's made to make rich people even richer. So by just even if you're peaceful, you can still be causing revolution by fucking with the system, basically. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. Um, you're absolutely right. And um, it was this this quote by this mayor, the the. The revolution and the, and the violence, even if they were a peaceful protest, was the violence was they basically by going on a general strike in the city, shut down the the machine of capitalism, um, even though it, was, it never works out great for everybody. And I know you have the people like, well, rising tide lifts all boats and look how look how, you know, capitalism is the best system. They lift so many people out of poverty, blah, 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 blah. And it's like. You know, you're looking at first off, you're only looking at European society um, historically, uh, talking about the inequalities. There were other societies far before uh, European colonization that uh, had far more e- equality and egalitarian societies um, far before anything like capitalism was even thought about or invented. So to say that capitalism is what ended poverty is uh, it, it's it's almost it's, it's ridiculous. It's. It's so funny because it's you're, it's ending the thing that it created. <laughs> yeah, it, it creates poverty. I mean, there's a old a saying I said this on the podcast before. Of uh, they talked to a Native American uh, chief, and um, he was talking about the difference between the, the what he saw in the, the colonizers' uh, culture versus his own. And he was like, in our society, if someone was cold, we gave them a blanket. If they didn't have a house, we built them a house. If they didn't have any food, we gave them food. It wasn't the idea, you got to have money to buy it. And if you don't, you can't work. You're, you're a lazy bum. And, and, and um, oh, Jesus, a lot of these things come up in this in this chapter. And we're talking about the 1920s um, because I think um, as you get later on, Henry Ford and his quote being that um, even though he was laying people off, he's like, oh, the reason why they're so poor during the Great Depression is they're, they're lazy. They just don't, they just don't want to work. And has and have we then we hear that during the pandemic when every, you know, everybody was getting laid off and fired and shit like that, losing their jobs. Uh, people were dying from fucking a goddamn pandemic. And the powers that be were like, people are just lazy. They don't want to work. They want to sit at home and collect their government benefits and mooching off the system. It's like we fucking pay taxes. That money is fucking ours. Those stimulus checks, that wasn't the government giving money to us out of the goodness of our hearts. If you fucking buy any food, you buy a fucking bottle of booze. You go to work, whether you work at McDonald's or you work as a doctor, the government is taking their cut. These companies are taking their cut and they're getting, they're using their taxes. And you know what? I think most people in this country wouldn't complain about taxes if we actually had universal health care, free college, fucking roads that didn't have potholes in them and a functioning goddamn democracy. Um, I mean, I think most people would be like, hey, you know, you know, it could, you know, hey, whatever taxes it's the cost of civilization. But instead, our, our tax dollars go to military and, and police. And I do like after that mayor um, said that statement, how they, despite this um, general strike, which is very powerful, being very peaceful, how they came down on the organizers and jailed them and harassed them and also sent the cops to, 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 um, to harass and intimidate them. So when, when people are like the cops are part of the 99%, they are always, always 100% of the time the right hand of the oppressor like my boy Huey P. Newton said that the the whole people don't want to work thing is I think it's such an effective form of propaganda because 
when when people are not cared for in a society in a capitalist system it has nothing to do whatsoever with immigrants or people being lazy it's always because those at the top are ev- extracting a crazy amount of wealth all the money that we should go back in the system for healthcare schooling things like that are being stolen by the rich people but People aren't given a proper education in this country, so they don't understand complex economic systems and how that functions. But what they do understand is, you know, we've all experienced where, you know, you're in school at work, you need to be working on something and somebody in the group is lazy. So that's that's something they see in their day-to-day lives. So the rich people use that against us to say, oh, yeah, all these problems is because lazy people. But I just want to remind people, like, if you're blaming other poor people for why you don't have money or why the country doesn't have money, which is also bullshit, especially when the money is all made up. But anyway, when you're wondering who's stealing from you, it's the people with money. (laughs) Other poor people, they don't have any money. What are they stealing it from you and then they don't have it? That doesn't make any sense. It's the rich people who are plundering our tax dollars. I mean, that's what all the bailouts are and shit. That's just rich people stealing all our tax money and using it for, you know, their criminal enterprises. They're using it to buy drugs, Brian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) These lazy people are using their welfare checks to buy themselves caviar and, and lobster and, and living a good life while you go to work and these immigrants are coming here taking taking jobs taking good jobs from americans taking when we speak american here we believe in freedom and you don't need to take our jobs <laughs> it's also a form of projection like telling of these rich fuckers telling people that they're lazy and, and that you know the welfare queens and stuff it's also projection is a, is a big part of it all these rich people are fucked up on drugs too probably more than poor people I mean, Hunter Hunter Biden gets addicted to coke, and you know he goes to treatment for it. But right, but then his dad writes coke, and his dad writes crime bills to lock up poor people for the exact same shit. Yeah, Yeah, and then says and locks the sons of bitches up. But we're supposed to all be like Biden is a great is a great man or something like that. He he's a piece of shit. But like you know, it's always you know like Cornell West says, you know, gangster capitalism for you know the the masses of people. And socialism for the rich. So the rich people fuck up the economy. Just like we'll see um, as the Great Depression comes after the roaring 20s and all the speculation and, and deregulation and companies doing whatever they can. Uncheck capitalism. And then what happens? The economy tanks. That was another eerie parallel in this chapter. Is the uh, speculation by the rich people, which still happens today and still causes collapses. <laughs> we saw that in 2008. We saw that in... 2020 with the pandemic you know especially mm-hmm. especially 2008 with the housing bubble and people think there's going to be another uh, housing crash uh, because most of these houses that we got all these homeless people and we got all these empty houses uh, that are just owned by these corporations and they're just sitting on property well yeah and, because well and I, I just want to say that and that's it's by design right so like you had all this speculation in the 20s and there was a great depression and then we had FDR and the New Deal, as we'll get into in the, on the next history episode, where we built and put new laws into place to prevent all that in the banking sector. And guess what? The American economy boomed. We had the biggest you know, middle class we ever had in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But then you know, the, the, the inevitable tide of money slowly you know, corrupts politicians and they tore down all those regulations and kind of culminating in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And then guess what? As soon as they tear down all those laws, oh, 
same shit happens again and then uh, you have all the you know the recessions basically a depression i mean let's be real in 2008 um yeah they just i think they just called it recession because depression has like all this connotation to it so they 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 realize that they can't say that so they have to like a recession sounds softer so it's like it's still the same shit like lots of people out of work uh desperation uh, people can't afford shit inflation's up um wages are shit or stagnant uh people are living on the street people are struggling and they're like oh it's a recession not a depression because if we say depression then people are going to go back to the 1930s and even people who have a rudimentary understanding of history understands at least americans uh understanding of history knows that that time was pretty bad for a lot of fucking people yep all right, and so you have so striking is going on all over the country. So you had the the strike, the mass strike in Seattle. Then you also have a big one going on in Pennsylvania at the steel mills. Howard Zinn writes in the steel mills of Western Pennsylvania later in 1919, where men worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, doing exhaustive work under intense heat. A hundred thousand steel workers were signed up in 20 different AFL craft unions. A national committee attempting to tie them together in the organizing drive found in the summer of 1919 that, quote, the men were letting it be known that if we do not do something for them, they will take matters into their own hands. There was pressure from Woodrow Wilson and Samuel Gompers, AFL president, to postpone the strike. But the steelworkers were too insistent, and in September of 1919, not only the 100,000 union men, but 250,000 other workers went on strike. And as we discussed before, there's always the retaliation to the strikes. The sheriff of Allegheny County swore in as deputies 5,000 employees of U.S. Steel who had not gone on strike and announced that the outdoor meetings would be forbidden. So ain't that some fucking shit? So you have these fucking losers. You have 250,000 people going on strike. And then, of course, there's always the fucking losers who, oh, we shouldn't go on strike. Everything's fucking fine. And the county turns around and and makes those men officers to go out and beat up their coworkers and stuff. It's just fucking insane. That's Um, the problem with, like, capitalism and strikes is, like, there's always going to be a like a segment of the population that's desperate enough to take the jobs that are being striked out of by the strikers. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of sucks. Cause it's like, you know, between those groups, then all of a sudden there's this like hatred or hostility or whatever. And yep. like some of it's justified though. It's like, you know, like black people go and take the jobs, but they don't feel bad taking the jobs cause they weren't allowed into the unions back then. That's, I think, an important point is that unions back during this time that accepted all more, you know, a wide variety of people. So, you know, the ones that accepted women, the ones that accepted black people, they were more likely more often than not succeeded. But the ones that didn't were doomed to fail. And which is, you know, it's so obvious. It's like hilarious that it needs to be said because the whole point of a strike is to have lots of people. You know, exactly. So, exactly. so to, to so that, ban people is just like defeating, you know, you're cutting yourself down before you even get started. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's that's the power of the, the divide and conquer tactic, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, we, we talk about the, the Romans use that tactic. And uh, it's been a tactic used by those in power for a long time. So it's like, oh, well, can't let these people in there. And, and like you need when well, you need solidarity 
the thing is with movements and social movements and, and the ones that are successful, and and I try to tell people because Americans are so they don't the average American doesn't know history, um, and and nowadays they're not even fucking teaching history in school, um, especially this type of history, because uh, Howard Zinn's book is People's History of the United States is one of the banned books in many uh, across the country because it makes their Makes little Billy feel bad because he learns that maybe his great great grandfather <laughs> might have been an overseer or a cop beating up some uh, poor worker. But anyway, um, that that solidarity is needed because there the masses of people far outnumber the, those with power. But how do those with power, a small cabal or a number of people, keep masses and masses of people um, at each other's throat? That's that you have to do that because they're all at each other's throat. They can't see who's really fucking them over. The powers that be. So they'll be like, oh no, it's we can't let the black people in this um union because like, you know, they're they're inferior to us. And then your unions, you know, their their your union strikes fail. Where, you know, you had the wobblies and we talked about in previous chapters, who were, you know, crossing those racial lines and, and gender lines and allowing women and, 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 and people of color and black and brown and BIPOC folks to enter their unions uh, because they understood that to overcome these oppressive forces, you need total solidarity. Um, and it's not to say that these unions are perfect, not to say these individuals are perfect, but that's how you achieve your goals long term uh, through solidarity. I like how Howard Zinn spent a page of this chapter two talking about how it wasn't just the U.S. that was experiencing this massive upheaval. He talks about strikes and revolutions the world over during this time period in the 19 teens and 20s. Um, Probably the most important being the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. I mean, I I don't know if any single revolution has caused such a global um, just a shift in, in, in global. And I mean, really, World War Two. The reason, you know, Hitler Hitler came to power being, oh, the Bolsheviks, we got to stop the Bolsheviks. Because really that was one of the first revolutions in world history where the people rose up and literally killed the fucking king and his whole fucking family Woo! and kind of yeah, right? and, 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 and ended, you know, a monarchy and replaced it with a system that was trying to move away from market economics. Um and real, and I mean, if you think that World War II has happened because of that, really the entire American empire, I mean, all our wars after World War II was the U.S. trying to stamp out any socialist and communist governments springing up across the world. Um, so even during this time when all, you know, like the telephone had just come onto the scene, but still we were globally connected and the mood was towards revolution and the whole globe. Um, so you can only imagine how connected we are now. Um, and you see, you know, just like in 2020, America, America wasn't the only country that had mass upheavals. It was happening all over the world. Um, so if you don't think we're connected, you are turning, <laughs> turning a blind eye to it, kind of just the law of nature and just, you know, you're, you're ignorant to how connected we all really are. And moving forward, so you have strikes going on all over the world, and then, of course, it wouldn't be American history if you didn't sprinkle in some good old-fashioned racism. Um, So Congress in the 20s put an end to the 
quote, dangerous, turbulent flood of immigrants. There were 14 million immigrants uh, coming to the United States between 1900 and 1920. And Congress uh, passed laws setting immigration quotas. The quotas favored Anglo-Saxons, kept out black and yellow people, limited severely the coming of Latins, Slavs, and Jews. No African country could send more than 100 people. 100 was the limit for China, for Bulgaria, for Palestine. 34,000 could come from England or Northern Ireland, but only 3,000 from Italy. 51,000 from Germany, but only 124 from Latvia. 28,000 from the Irish Free Free State, but only 2,000 from Russia. And this is so funny to me, like how easy it is for the powers to be that divide us. They're like, all right, you know, Ireland, okay, but Italy... I don't know. You're a little darker. You're not like white, white. So we're going to limit you. You know, it's just like <laughs> we're just such a fucking stupid ass species sometime. Um, yeah, I, fo- I found all those numbers about those immigration quotas really interesting. Actually, I didn't. It's still like that to this day, probably. Right. That'd be interesting. What the what the immigration policies are now. I mean, it's funny to. <laughs> It's just so, like, the people in power can't help but show their belief system sometimes. So, you know, like, if they're racist, the policies of the government are going to be racist because exactly. that's who these people are. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, also at this time, you have the Ku Klux Klan is being revived. Um, it spread to the north during this time. By 1924, the KKK had four and a half million members. The NAACP seemed helpless in the face of mob violence and race hatred everywhere. The impossibility of the black persons ever being considered equal in white America was the theme of the nationalist movement led in the 1920s by Marcus Garvey. He preached black pride, racial separation, and a return to Africa, which to him held the only hope for black unity and survival. But Garvey's movement, inspired as it was to some blacks, could not make much headway against the powerful white supremacy um, currents of the post-war decade. And I think this goes back to your point, Steve, that, you, you know, there's in a capitalist system, you just always have like even if you, you know, are doing the moral correct thing, you just have this always this group of fucking assholes. And this is why I don't really ever criticize marginalized suppressed groups however they choose to lash out against the system that's fine by me honestly in my opinion because who i mean marcus garvey you know like okay i would say if i was alive during that time i would say no like going back to africa like that's stupid we should all live here in peace but black people i mean really so it's 1920s you have till the 1960s where they get some basic civil rights so from that perspective, like a black person living through that for the next few decades, like, yeah, who am I to tell him, you know, like what he, you know, how he wants to fight the system? Because, you know, I'm not the one living under that oppression. And I feel the same way now, like we look at what's going on in Israel and Palestine with, you know, Hamas. Oh, terrorists, terrorists, terrorists. It's like, nah, fucking Israel is the terrorists. If, you know, a Palestinian wants to pick up an AK or throw some rocks at some tanks, like, you know, I'm not going to even though I'm against violence, I'm not going to tell them how they should resist their own, their own violence. And 
I don't know. It's just interesting with this like time period. Just, <laughs> I mean, four and a half million. I don't. I don't. Remember, I don't know. I should look up how many people were in the country at that time. But four and a half million people in the KKK. That is a huge chunk of the population. I can sympathize with his like will or want to leave the country. I mean, I talk about leaving America all the time, and I wasn't oppressed as they were back then. It's like it's it's just the, not it's practical like, for a lot of people. It's not practical, though. and it's like, where would you even really go? That's any different nowadays, right? I mean, well, it's also the same. Well, that's the argument too. Um, like, if people are talking about Palestinians, like, well, you know, Israel's not going to stop, so why don't you just move? And it's just like, where, yeah, where are they going to go? And in 1920, Ryan, uh, the U.S. population was 106 million people. So, so four, four in every hundred were in the KKK. That's yeah, and and, and also and during that time period, the KKK marched on Washington, and they basically ran the state of Indiana. Well, they run many many states. So, and, and the KKK was around, have been around for a long time, and you notice that the government really didn't do. You know how they came to like completely destroy the Black Power movements and the Civil Rights movements and all this stuff. The KKK had a long, long head start before all these things, um, besides the NAACP. And the KKK is still around, but the Black Panthers aren't. I wonder why. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe those who run forces are those who burn crosses. <laughs> Shout out to Rage Against Machine and our Revolutionary Lyrics episode. Out now. Check it out. It, and it's because it's it's the opposite of what we taught. It's because the Black Panthers fought the system and the KKK served the system. So the KKK is allowed to exist. The Black Panthers are not allowed to exist. And hey, Biden, Joe Biden's mentor was a member of the KKK. Yep. Strom Thurmond. Mm-hmm. And Biden read his eulogy because Strom Thurmond, despite being a racist piece of shit, as Bernie would call him, probably a decent man, <laughs> just like Joe Biden. All right, and so let's uh, the let's talk about the kind of the economics of the 1920s and the, you know the message of the so-called Roaring Twenties. Um, Howard Zinn writes: There was some truth to the standard pictures that the twenties as a time of prosperity and fun, the Jazz Age, the Roaring Twenties. Unemployment was down from 1921 to 1927. The general level of wages for workers rose. Some farmers made a lot of money. The 40% of all families who made over 2000 a year could buy new gadgets, including cars, radios, and refrigerators. Millions of people were not doing badly, and they could shut out the pictures of the others, the tenant farmers, black and white, the immigrant families in the big c- cities, either either without work or not making enough to get basic necessities by prosperity but but prosperity was concentrated at the top while from 1922 to 1929 real wages and manufacturing went up per capita 1.4% a year the holders of common stocks gained 16.4% a year 6 million families 42% of the total made less than $1000 a year one-tenth of one percent of the families at the top at the top received as much income as 42 percent of the families at the bottom bottom according to a report of brook from the brooking institution every year in the 1920s about 25,000 workers were killed on the job and a hundred thousand permanently disabled two million people in new york city lived in tenements condemned as fire traps 
I think it's also important to point out that those 100,000 workers that were permanently disabled, there was no workers' comp during this time yet. That wasn't until the 1930s. So you're, so you're working an insanely hard job, you get disabled, you lose your job, and now you're fucked because you have no way to fucking earn an income and you get no, you know, you know, no way to earn an income now because you're disabled from your job. And I kind of see that now. That's another feature of capitalism is it, it, it works well enough just to get by. So the powers that be have realized you can't have everybody living in despair because then there will be a revolt. So you just need that nice thin middle class showing up to their jobs and being prosperous enough to just enough to not care so that they are happy with their lives and don't care about what's going on to everyone else. And again, I'm sorry I bring up Israel and Palestine, but it's on my mind because it's a fucking genocide going on in, in you know real life yep. right now. But I, I think about that in America. There have been sustained protests all over the country, every single city, um, lots of people, but it's not quite enough. You have just enough people that are fat and happy that they don't have to care about anything else going on in the world. So the machine just keeps turning. Yeah, to that to that point, I thought it was interesting when he talks about like the 40% of families who made over 2,000 years could buy all the new like gadgets and autos and radios and refrigerators. And I think about that all the time, how like like nowadays you can kind of like, even if you're like poor, you can kind of like, go home and go like play like a video game or something that just kind of like disconnects you from like your reality and that's like enough to like keep you off the streets protesting or whatever to pacify you yeah absolutely i honestly i think i'm guilty of that too i think i would have done a lot more rebellious shit if i hadn't i do have video games and you know constant stimulation nowadays um to distract you from from your material conditions but also we're, we're We're old and usually revolutions are led by young people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're not old. We're we're, we're getting close to middle age. I I guess I technically am middle age. Uh, I guess 40 is middle age, which is weird because that means like, well, I live to be 80 because then I'm right in the middle. But maybe not. I don't know. um, Technically, 36 is middle age if you're going by like the average lifespan of an American. Exactly. But but getting back to that, um, I mean, and these parallels are very true to kind of – to today, modern times, um, people, you know, as long as they got the latest iPhone or or PS5 and all this stuff. And and you, you, you it goes back to that George Carlin joke. You got the uh, rich people who uh, you got the you got the rich people who own everything and pay no taxes. You got the middle class people who pay all the taxes and go to work. And then you got the poor people just to scare the shit out of the middle class people, keep them alive, keep them at their job. Because if they don't, you know, work, they'll end up like these poor people. Um, and, and that's how our system works. I mean, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. But, you know, it's a, it's a simple gets a point across is that George Carlin joke did. Uh, because he's, he's right. <laughs> you got the, you know, the tax, the middle class is, you know, taking the tax burden. But, you know, they got their little tiny slice of the pie, their little crumbs. And they're fine. Like, hey, I got, I, got my, I got my fancy job. I got my nice little car. I got my Tesla. Um, I got a house. My kids can eat every night. They can go to good schools. We can even send them to private schools. Everything's fine. And if you see a homeless person on the street or you see a family living in a car, well, they just didn't work hard enough. And you can go about your day. Um, and if you have a critical mass, and I think that's... But the thing is that it's a facade. Um, I think it was sh- a crazy thing. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it shows a lack of... like. 
we the the great evolution that needs to happen with humanity if we're going to survive now is our is an evolution of our expanding our empathy to other people because we we've evolved you know we had our our complex brains and our opposable thumbs and our bipedal legs that we've we've quote unquote conquered the environment as far as we can you know we we're we're pretty good at surviving our environmental impacts but we're going to destroy ourselves because there's so many of us and we haven't evolved our empathy to you know, that's the thing is like these middle class people like even like the three of us we are in a good enough state where like we're okay but instead of sitting down and shutting up we should now evolve our empathy to start fighting for other people you know who are homeless who are victims of war and things like that and like you said that word critical mass in my opinion it just there are, there are a lot of us that do fight for those things even though we are well off but it's never that critical mass amount to actually really change the 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 underlying system and i think that's why during 2020 and in the in the height of the covid pandemic they did everything in their power to be like oh it's over uh stop wearing masks see your smiles go back to work because you had people sitting at home they were reflecting upon things they had time to do even if they had time to just like zone out and play video games and shit like that uh people were still sharing videos of these protests and like these cops were doing and people like brianna taylor going to her home and shooting her and not announcing who the fuck they are and like her boyfriend in that time did what any person would do defending their home defending their family um you got some people banging on your door late at night. You don't know who they are. Um, they're loud. It's a lot of them. You're going to defend your fucking, you know, you're going to defend your home. I, that, that's, that makes sense. <laughs> the police could have been like, it's the police. And they had the wrong house. Um, but all these things that people thinking um, about, about how they're getting fucked. And you can't have, you can't have the masses of people um, just sitting by, sitting on their thumbs and thinking about how they're getting fucked. So you got to get back to work. Get back into that, you know, get back into the grind. Get back into the machine. Um, the hell, that's why these bosses want the work from home things uh, overturned. And the crazy thing, even just like in the 1920s, we're talking about there were no workman comps. There was no um, OSHA, uh, no safety regulations or jobs. So if people were injured on the job, even if they had a middle class job or a job that or a contractor, or they were some type of contractor um, that made a, a decent living or a trade, tradesman where they can take the care of their kids and family and buy a house if they got hurt on their job. They were pretty much fucked. And the thing is, nowadays, um, you might have these safety regulations at work, and that's great, and that's all that's all good, and work risk comp. But now, we don't have health care, universal health care. So if you lose your job and your health care is tied to your job, you're just as screwed as that person was almost 100 years ago when they lost their job, when they got injured on their job because they were no workman's comp and no way they can sue their company for dangerous working conditions. Now you might have OSHA and you have these job regulations. Well, the few that you have, because I'm sure the corporations have, you know, agrees the palms of these useless politicians to deregulate everything because, you know, regulation is bad. Shout out to Ronald Reagan. Um, yeah. So even if you're a nice, comfy middle class person nowadays, if you're not a multimillionaire, have a, a strong family and have a, a support network. If you get sick, whether you are in your early 20s entering the workforce or, you know, you're a senior citizen on your way to retire out the workforce. And if you get super sick and you lose your health insurance or you don't have any and you need like surgery or anything like that, it's going to set you back hundreds of thousands of dollars likely. Yeah. Um, I, I, we can't talk about the 1920s too without 
talking about how the women, uh, the women, <laughs> women finally or the women, the, the women, <laughs> the women. Um, how Talk about the women. <laughs> what is that from? Oh my god, that reminded me of something. But anyway, um, women finally earned the right to vote. Um, Howard Zinn writes: Women had finally, after long egg, egg. Was this word agitation? Agitation. Agitation. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Gotta stop smoking that marriage in one. Hey, I did. That's the funny part. Oh man, um, long agitation won the right to vote in 1920 with the passage of the 19th Amendment, but voting was still a middle class and upper class activity. Eleanor Flexner recounted the history of the movement, saying the effect of female suffrage was that quote women have shown the same tem- tendency to divide along orthodox party lines as their male voters. <laughs> I actually found no that fucking yeah, I found that <laughs> statement interesting because a lot of times you'll get into a conversation with someone who says like, oh, the only thing wrong with the world is that men run it and that if women ran it, everything would be better. Mm-hmm. It's just like hard to disagree with them without sounding like a bigot or something, but it's like, no. It wouldn't be any different. As long as you're operating under the same system as we're operating under now, you're going to be influenced by the same environmental factors and the same outcomes are going to happen. Exactly. exactly. And that that's what's so fucking... I, identity politics annoys the shit out of me and gets under my skin so much because, like, newsflash, we're all human beings. Mm-hmm. Again, I know the divide and conquer. Oh, men are like this and women are like this. We're all pretty much the fucking same. And like you just said, if the condition if it's still if you're still operating under the same system, nothing is going to fundamentally change. Like we have okay, so if that was true that if you had if women just ran things, then there'd be no war. The CEO of Lockheed Martin is a woman. <laughs> There's women at the head of like Boeing and all these military contractor companies. And guess what? The bombs are still falling. It didn't stop anything because it's still a capitalist system where people, rich people only care about profiting off the exploitation of others. So, yeah, I, I just completely agree with you. And I'm always frustrated when it there, there's always fucking dumbasses. It's, who, it's who a legitimate like agitation, you know, like the patriarchy and all that bullshit. Yeah, it's a legitimate you know, reason to be angry at things. It's just, it it lacks like a system analysis, I guess. Well, you definitely need, so you do want, it is a, it is a problem if you only have one race or one gender in power. Absolutely. Because you have to, in order to get the ball rolling to a more equitable society, you do have to allow the, everyone to get into these positions of power, to get that perspective, to get the ball rolling. But that does if that's your end goal if that's just oh we're good there and you stop that's that's that doesn't mean anything that just means okay now you know okay all the the only all only 100 people have all the money and one of them's a woman like yippee <laughs> you know it's, well that's that's why my wife was talking about nowadays we live in a gilded age but a spicy gilded gilded age because now you have you know very wealthy um at black folks you got very wealthy uh LGBTQ individuals. Um, You have, you know, women um, with with money and power. Look at, you know, Ronga Robbie is, you know, producing things in Hollywood and stuff like that. So, but these folks are still rich and we're still in the same system and they're going to have the same mentality. Hence why Michelle Obama can hang out with Bush. Like I said earlier, Ellen can hang out with Bush. Um, This is why, you know, you have these celebrities that align themselves with Trump. 
despite how terrible he is, because, you know, at the end of the day, hey, I'm going to give you rich, I'm going to give my fellow rich people a tax cut. You know, we got those poor people and those middle class people that's going to, you know, bail us out when we fuck things up. You know, now if, if me and you fall on hard times, we're fucked. We got to try to, you know, get some scrape by, get some benefits and stuff like that. And who knows what will happen if they, if they um, give us any benefits. Um, <laughs> yeah, we got to, but, you know, if the companies fuck up and, and billionaires class fucks up, they get a bailout. No question asked. We got student loan debt. Oh, you shouldn't have took that out. Even though we fucking ingrained that into your head that if you don't go to college and get a degree and, and become a, a productive member of society, you're going to be homeless on the street. Or it's maybe the job that you want to do requires that you need to get a college education. So why should it cost you an arm and a leg when it didn't? Just a few decades ago, it didn't. It was, you know, now if you want to go to a private college and stuff like that, fine. But like public universities should be free. But this is this kind of, uh, it's the same old, same old, no matter what decade it is in this country. Because at the end of the day, the system itself is completely flawed. I think without a major revolution and shift in our system, you can probably say goodbye to any sort of affordable education. I think the people in power learned their lesson about educating the public too well. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of bailouts, <laughs> during the president's the presidency of Harding and Coolidge in the 20s, the secretary of the treasury was Andrew Mellon, one of the richest men in America. In 1923, <laughs> Congress was presented with the Mellon Plan, calling for what looked like a general reduction of income taxes, except that the top income brackets would have their taxes tax rates lowered from 50% to 25% while the lowest income group would have theirs lowered from 4% to 3%. <laughs> Whoa. And, <laughs> and this was the same thing that I remember happened under Trump, where he, like, lowered it again. But, you know, he had his tax plan, that like, pretty much the only bit of legislation he passed while he was president. And it was, oh, see, I reduced taxes for everybody. I'm for the people. But if you actually look into the bill... It was all the rich people that got the the real deductions, and then it was crumbs, you know, for the little people. Also, I think it's fucking hilarious. During the 1920s, it was a reduction from 50% to 25%. Isn't it like 8% now or something? Like, it's something, it's crazy. Like, it was still so much higher back then than it is even now. And after World War II, when we had the, the you know, biggest boom for the middle class in the country, it was up to 90%. So... When these fucking rich assholes on TV like complain about us raising the taxes, it's just it's just so fucking goddamn frustrating. Cause it's like, yeah, you don't need that much fucking money. We need it for our healthcare and our education and our roads. Which I think there's gonna be a lot of deaths in the coming decades because of the infrastructure in America. I mean, I've I've read some articles about like engineers and uh, I'm forgetting the word like civil engineers and stuff who like study this and like. Our roads and shit are so fucking deca- decrepit in this country. And bridges and shit like yeah. that. And, and that shit's just and gonna start collapsing. Yeah, and then you talk about, like, just this recently, that airplane that, you know, they just were, it was workers who called the, uh, like, hey, you know, the safety, you know, they're, they're cutting corners and all this stuff. And one guy was fired. And, and luckily no one died when that fucking emergency door flew off or whatnot. Um, but we're gonna see more disasters like this more and more has we because infrastructure for one isn't sexy and and i also i feel like this is a the crumbling empire has our military budget and police budget 
keeps inching up and up. Everything else is being forgotten about or, or, or left to the side or kicked down the road. And eventually, the society is going to implode from within. I mean, Rome was burning and they had the games, I guess. We'll have sports. We'll have the Super Bowl. But everything else will be fucked. Um, Rome will be burning and we'll still have our games and we'll have our military. And we can rest our laurels on a, a bygone era when America was great. When it, it, which it never was to begin with, for it. not for most people, throughout its history. And it's the the crumbling infrastructure is going to be another thing that's going to cost lives, and people are going to have no way to fight against it. Because like, all right, you let's say your loved one's on a bridge, the bridge collapses, they die. Like, who are you gonna? Who's gonna? It's going to be so difficult to hold anyone accountable. Like, well, you're going to try and sue the state. It's like, all right, good luck if you're fucking poor going up against that behemoth with all the power that they have. Especially, you know, the state is the legal system. So it's, you know, it, uh, I just foresee that that tragedy coming. They'll blame it on a homeless person like they did in Georgia. Right, yep. <laughs> right, right, right. Homeless people smoking crack under a bridge. <laughs> Not the fact that we had all these things just stored under this fucking bridge where they shouldn't have been stored, but fuck it. Um. I also am happy he pointed out in this chapter, I really couldn't find like a good way to just read a quick paragraph about because he talks about for like a few pages and it all requires context. But um, communism wasn't just in Russia. This was the 1920s and 30s was a huge time of communist party organizing within the United States. Many of these strikes and um, protests and things that, that went on during the 20s, it was communists who were at the helm and were you know, or doing the, the hard work to organize these movements. Um, and so, you know, it's obviously no, you know, that's another reason. Not only it wasn't just because of the fear of, you know, Bolsheviks and communism in Russia, it was also communism at home that the, the power apparatus was afraid of and why America has just been awash in anti-communist propaganda for decades and de- going on a century now. Um all right, but then you have the big moment at the end of the decade, uh, the stock market crash of 1929, which marked the beginning of the Great Depression of the United States, came directly from wild speculation, which collapsed and brought the whole whole economy down with it. Um, but as John Galbraith says in his study of the event, behind that speculation was the fact that the economy was fundamentally unsound. He points, out, he points to very unhealthy corporate and banking structures and unsound foreign trade, much economic misinformation, and the bad distribution of income. The highest 5% of the population received only about one-third of all personal income. A socialist critique would go further and say that the capitalist system was by its nature unsound, a system driven by one overriding motive of corporate profit and therefore unstable, unpredictable, and blind to human needs. The result of all that, permanent depression for many of its people, and the periodic crisis for almost everybody. Capitalism, despite its attempts at self-reform, its organization for better control, was still in 1929 a sick and undependable system. And And it still is. Yeah. (laughs) Basically, yep. Like the longest lasting cancer that's around. Yeah, and and the parallels, and and I do like how he points out, like the the presidential administrations at this time were absolutely useless 
Um, even though they knew exactly what was going on, they just didn't care because the most important thing was making sure their rich Wall Street buddies were taken care of, uh, not the masses of people, which, I, I mean, it's, it's always, it's kind of hilarious when so many people think these, like, elected officials and these government people in power are, like, really for the people by the people. Uh, maybe there's, like, a small handful of elected officials who actually feel that way. And maybe there's even uh, probably like half of them get into public service thinking, hey, you know, I'm going to, you know, change things and make it better for people. But, you know, when like Dead Prez said, shout out to Revolutionary Lyrics episode. Check it out. Out now. <laughs> um, they tell politicians to shut the hell up and follow tradition. And that tradition is you're going to fucking be in there for the rich people, making sure that the rich get richer and the poor gets poorer and know your fucking role. And if you challenge that, um, we'll put a bullet in your head. Or we'll, you know, give you some scandal and you'll be forced to resign. Or, you know, you just quit because you're just like, it's fucking disgusting on the inside. Um, case in point, that one guy on Twitter, uh, Peter Dow, who was like, a, uh, who has worked for the Clinton campaign, uh, her husband and her, um, saw the belly of the beast from within. And he's like, look, I've seen it from within. I, you know, I organized, I've I seen these policies. They are all, you know, basically bought and paid for um, to the highest bidder. And sometimes it's not even that high of a bidder, as my wife would tell me about some of these Georgia politicians at the local level. How you know they can be they can be paid for by for a five hundred dollar dinner by some company. <laughs> Give a thousand dollars to their campaign. Oh, all right, sure. I'll do whatever you say. <laughs> and if and if you think politicians being fucking morons is a new thing, uh, you would be wrong. That has always been the case. It's so funny to read these quotes from the rich people and the politicians during this time. So Herbert Hoover, who was the president during the crash, uh, right before the crash, was giving a speech and said, We in America today are nearer to the final triumph over poverty than any before in the history of any land. <laughs> and then the fucking stock market crashed. And then you referenced this earlier, but so then the crash happened, everyone's losing their jobs. And then Calvin Coolidge, that fucking genius, said, When more and more people are thrown out of work, unemployment results. Uh, yeah, you think? <laughs> no fucking duh. Oh, wow. Yeah. You are a genius. Yeah. That's like to Eli, show that's how like detached from reality these people are. Uh-huh. And then uh, you referenced this earlier too, Lornette. Henry Ford in March of 1931, so about a year and a half after the crash, said the, said the crisis was here because, quote, the average man won't really do a hard day's work unless he is caught and cannot get out of it. There is plenty of work to do if people would just do it. A few weeks later, he laid off 75,000 workers. <laughs> well, you know, those he laid off those workers, Brian, because they were lazy and they just didn't want to work hard, and, and he had to lay them off. You know, that's just good business. I don't know what you're talking about. And, and, and it goes back to this. I'm always baffled, and this is so true in America today. I've seen it at every job I, I've ever had. You have this set of working-class Americans that think their bosses and their job care about them. They don't. The whole point of capitalism, the entire system, is based off of profit. The moment it is not profitable to employ you, they will can your ass. And they don't give a fuck about your family or your medical bills or your debt or your, your mortgage payment or anything. They don't give a fuck. It is a system completely about profit. Profit is the only thing that matters to people who run companies. And no matter how virtuistic they are. So maybe you do have an owner that's a nice guy and he wants to do good by his employees. He, you know, hires people of all different backgrounds and everything. That's all good and great. 
but he's not going to keep you on if it's not profitable. That's the game that, and that's why I also don't like necessarily. I mean, I hate these fucking rich assholes in that you know the system that they're in. They are the ones that are the most corrupted. But I don't, I don't think of them as aliens. That you know they are just like everyone else. We're all playing by the same game. I'm in the middle class. I just don't go throwing my money out the window. I try and keep everything I I can get. And if I if an opportunity comes along where I can get more money, I do take it because we're all playing this game for profit. So it's just I just wish I could get this. I don't know. It's just so frustrating at work when there's like these people that like think the company like cares about their well being. It's just nuts. I think no, that's and, why. And, and Brian, I'll, I'll go ahead. Steve. I was just gonna say that's why I think it's important to think of things in terms of like a systems perspective because. Really, any of us three, anybody in the world could be anybody, really, like depending yeah. on how they're born onto this world and the environment that they're in. Like, if we were born into like a rich family, we would be the rich assholes. Like, it's right. just how psychology and sociology works. And so, like, when this, uh, this paragraph was talking about how capitalism by its very nature is like unsound, it's easy to say, like, when there's a great depression that the system is unsound, but you, you just have to analyze like what should an economy do if not what it's doing now. And I think when you start listening to like people who call themselves like systems theorists, to me, they're the ones who really have the answers in terms of how an economy should work and spoiler alert, it's scientific based. So watch out all you like religious people or whatever but like yeah it's like we live on a finite planet you know you take catalog of all the resources you have the needs of like the people and that's how you kind of just like build your distribution network and manufacturing and stuff and it's just like no we just have this like profit money driven thing that sucks and doesn't even really in a really crude and poor way represents reality our economy doesn't even economize. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know? it's like barely, you can almost not even, like, using the word economy to describe it almost doesn't even make sense. Yeah, it's more just well, like a free-for-all. <laughs> yeah, we, what we do need to, what to call it is, 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 is a plutocracy and a kleptocracy, um, a government of thievery, a, 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 a society um, ran by and for the rich. I mean, study after study, by some of even their most prestigious universities are, you know, basically say that the, the will of the people have no have no direct influence over public policy. Anything that comes from to the people, either a the people, as we see throughout this um, people's history, of the United States and our um, history podcast and even our question culture podcast, anything that benefits everyday working class, middle class and um low-income folks had to be fought and bled for to get those little bit of tiny, tiny bit of benefits. Let's be honest, tiny bit of benefits. Everything else in our in our public policy when it comes to these um, politicians and, and policymakers is all to benefit the rich. And going back to like your job caring about you, it's, it's, that's just not the truth for corporate America. It's the same thing for the nonprofit space. Um, th- these nonprofits, you know, they, they have a oh, they have the do-gooder, you know, um, vibe and people donate to them. And like they're doing the right thing and they're holding the people accountable and they're helping people. They don't give a fine fuck about their workers. They find them replaceable. In fact, as a social worker, they do this thing to like people in the nonprofit space like, oh, well, you should be low paid and, you know, it should be the work. 
should be the work, the good work that you're doing because you're saving the world or you're making the world a slightly better place. Ain't nothing wrong with that at all. That's that's no. But they use that to exploit the workers in that in that space. Um, so I would say this to all uh, nonprofit workers: um, unionize, um, unionize, unionize, and watch and see just how how caring your organization is going to be. They're going to act just as uh, viciously and anti-union has um, the for-profit space. So um, the workers have nothing to lose but their chains. Shout out to my man, <laughs> Carlos Moxis. <laughs> goddamn commies. Goddamn commies talking about Marxism and socialism and criticizing capitalism. Well, the problem is, is that you just don't want to work and you're lazy. And if you worked out, and by the time we all were 23, we should have been all driving Bentley Coupes. And then by the time we were 36, we can all be like Andrew Tate, who's like, you know, he has all these cars and all these girls. Um, he's holding those girls against their will because what are the women want to date him otherwise? Um, but we could be like that. if we, we just, We're just lazy. That's all. He's not lazy. That's why he's rich. I think this time period, too, also is kind of like, I might be off a little bit, but this is kind of like, I think, like the beginning of like, consumerism like you know like off the walls consumerism like because before this yeah people bought things but the things they bought they tried to make last as long as possible and they were like reusable so they still had their own like little home economies that they were catering to but starting around this time with like henry ford and the assembly line is like when planned obsolescence really started becoming like a you know like a topic that you know, the people in charge of manufacturing we're talking about and just like people needing to, you know, support the economy by buying things. And I think this time period is really when that sort of shift started taking off. No, you're at, you're absolutely right. This this is that period. Um, This is also the period like the birth of marketing and kind of a new evolution of propaganda as well. Um, but I, I liked how you spoke about systems theory earlier because um, he has this this paragraph in this chapter where he, he's talking about d- during the Great Depression and Howard Zinn says, there were millions of tons of food around, but it was not profitable to transport or to sell it. Warehouses were full of clothing, but people could not afford it. There were lots of houses, but they stayed empty because people couldn't pay the rent. And that reminded me of when I first started questioning the economic system and looking for alternatives. I was looking at the Venus Project, which is a sustainable alternative economic movement. Um, and it, the the founder was talking about how he grew up during the Great Depression. And he, even as a child, he was struck by, he would walk by all the buildings. You know, there was no damage there. All the physical things were still there. The buildings were still there. They weren't destroyed. Everything was still there. But just because of the rules of this game, people had were suffering. And that kind of turned him on to, to realizing, you know, the systemic nature of things. There's also a funny comedian. Uh, I can't remember his name right now. But he did a bit about, like, isn't it funny that we made everything up and it still sucks? And it's like, it's like oh, my God, the economy, the, the bubble's going to burst. And it's like, well, just pretend that it doesn't. It's like, these people have all the money. These people have no money. Well, take their money, give it to them. Or print more money. Oh, we can. It'll de- devalue the currency. Just pretend it doesn't. <laughs> you know Exactly. Everything we made. I mean, we like to talk about with children. All oh, this is playing make-believe. All this shit is make-believe. Yeah. Like gender, mm-hmm. race, 
mm-hmm. identity. Like the only thing that is 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 true is that you'll live and that you'll die, and that, that's about it. And the fact that we've organized our entire life around working to die as an average person, we're retiring and then actually enjoying life, or just enjoying life in general, is a luxury that so many people can't afford. And especially as we keep having hard economic times, and as millennials, all of us. We've lived through like multiple recessions and a great recession, which really was just a depression. Um, and, and we keep living through all this crazy shit. And that's that's the grind. We just And we made all this shit up. We can just be like, oh, you know, we, we can just come to the table one day and be like, yeah, this way isn't worked out. It kind of sucks. Only a few people are benefiting. Um, and, I, and why can't the, all of us benefit uh, only versus only a few? Um, and, and and it's the same excuses because you have rich people being like, oh, the people, poor people just don't work hard enough. Like they were talking to Kim Kardashian a couple years ago and it's like, they don't do the work. They're, I do the work. I work hard. Like, you don't fucking work hard. You were born rich. All right. And, and, and you, and, and you know, it's like, and, and you came up from a sex tape. And, and, and this isn't to slander sex workers or anything like that um, because they are doing the Lord's work out there. <laughs> sex workers work, hashtag uh, sex workers work. But it's like, Kim Kardashian, you're a rich asshole. Like, you know, your family's rich. Your dad was like a, a lawyer for OJ and all this shit. You all, you came from like a very well-off family. So like you had a head start over so many people. But these rich people are always like, oh, they don't work hard. People don't work hard. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of uh, Chase Bank, same thing. Oh, people just don't want to work. They're just lazy. They don't want to work. They don't want to work hard. And and now we see a whole fucking century ago, Henry Ford was saying the same fucking thing. It's the same excuse. The reason why things suck is that the lazy people just don't want to work. When the fact of the matter is we can give all these homeless people houses. We can give them clothes. We can feed them. And it's not about like, oh, did they earn it or not? Because I... I some um, an older woman told me this. She's like, I, she's like, feels like, <laughs> she says it about her fellow Americans. So she was talking about white people because she's a white woman. She's like, they're just like, they still have the surf mentality from Europe and they brought that over to here to the United States. And now we're all yep. living under that. And I'm like, yep. you're fucking, that's actually very insightful because you're absolutely right. They just like, one day we'll be a lord and be able to go to the castle. So let's just grind it out. <laughs> But you know what's sad is, is that that ideology, because of colonialism, has spread across the entire globe now. It's not just exactly. the West, you know? Yeah. And the most fucked up thing is even those medieval peasants and serfs had more fucking free time than we do currently as uh, mines, modern workers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ain't that some fuck? Ain't that some shit? And they were fucked over themselves. But at least they had more free time. Yeah, exactly. Um just one more kind of paragraph about the Great Depression to some stats to throw you. Um, after after the crash, the economy was stunned, barely moving. Over 5,000 banks closed and huge number of businesses unable to get money closed too. There was continued laid off, layoff of employees and cut wages for those who remained again and again. Industrial production fell by 50%. And by 1933, perhaps 15 million people, no one knows the exact numbers, one-fourth or one-third of the labor force was out of work. Can you imagine that one-third of the fucking people were out of work? Um, the Ford Motor Company, which in the spring of 1929 was had employed 128,000 workers, was down to 37,000 by August of 1931. So in two years, that insane drop, by the end of 1930, almost half the 280,000 textile mill workers in New England were out of work. Um, and what I, I like... Sorry, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, like, that level of unemployment could easily happen anytime soon. Because back then, that happened, and, you know, they didn't have nearly the level of automation that we do nowadays. Like, I mean, that's, like, what my job is, is to, like, make machines that make things so people don't have to. And it's just like, yeah, we're going to continue to do that because, for one thing, it's cheaper. It's profitable, yep. It's profitable is the main thing. But, like, on another level, it's like, I don't really, personally, I don't feel bad making machines like that because, like, I don't think a human should have to do those types of monotonous jobs where they're just, like, standing there all day, like, pushing a button over and over again or whatever. It's like, no, it's fucking dumb. No one should have to do that shit. But Automation is only a problem in capitalism. If right. we lived in a just society, we would want to build as robots and technology that, yeah, that free us of monotonous labor. Mm-hmm. But because but we now have to the, now the, money. But now the robots are, you know, writing stories and painting art in the, in the workers who are still going to work being exploited. So I'm like, what the fuck? I thought we were supposed to make the robots to do the fucking jobs we don't want to do. So we have more free time to write art and fucking stories and shit. I'm like, what the fuck, man? That's also interesting, though, too, because, like, personally, if I enjoy a piece of art, do I really care if a robot made it? It's like, maybe it takes a little bit away from it, but if it's, like, a beautiful piece of art, I personally can still find enjoyment out of it. So it's like, I mean, we're all going to merge with robots eventually anyway. That's just the way things are heading. Oh, God, here we go. Steve wants to become a robot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> are, are, are you a transhumanist? Um, <laughs> I, I do think given if we don't kill ourselves as a species, given enough time, that is ultimately will things will head. We'll be manipulating our genetics and more and more bonding with like mechanized things that we create. Yeah, I think. That but are we totally kind of in some way already not completely at that point, but. We're, I mean, we're setting the foundations. I mean, I have yeah. a fucking smartwatch on. I mean, we all connect to our cell phones. We're talking to each other on the on the internet, which is just a, a futuristic telephone mm-hmm. service. Futuristic, like telepathy. Well, well, it's, no, it's, I, I'm with you, Steve. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But I do see Lornette's point that the point of technology is to free us from this labor. Yet, yeah. because of capitalism, we're in this situation where the AI and robots are making the art and the humans are still doing the monotonous work. <laughs> so it's like the opposite of what, yeah. of what yeah, we yeah. want. It's and true. I also, I kind of disagree as far as like, yeah, I don't care how the art is made as long as it's beautiful, but I do think there, I don't think a computer can make as good of art as a, as a human who has emotions and can suffer so, <laughs> but at the end of the day it's humans right that now. created that technology that's like copying other humans so i mean that's it's true too a projection true of ourselves that's true too and also like i think i could if maybe robots and computers can't make that level of art yet but they can certainly be like supplements to an already creative person like a way a way to maybe expand artistically what they might be doing very true um i also wanted he he had i was appreciative he did a lot of it so he talked about the stats during the great depression and then towards the end of the chapter he talks about some personal stories of individuals and i always think that's when reading history you should always read both you should read the stats to get a, a comprehension of of 
the scale of things and the proportion of things, but you need the human stories to truly understand the suffering. I mean, for example, um, there was that HBO miniseries about Chernobyl, and for whatever reason, I thought it was a really well-done series, and it kind of sparked a, a morbid fascination with me um, with that event, and I learned a lot about it, but I just recently, for Christmas, I got a book where it was nothing but people telling the stories of their lives of what happened after Chernobyl. And honestly, it was one of the saddest books I've ever written, like maybe the most sad besides the one I read about Vietnam. But I feel like I didn't really understand what I you know, I had I knew all the 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 ins and outs of what happened at the reactor and how many people could possibly affect it. But it wasn't until I read the stories of the individual people that I truly felt like I grasped what a horrific event it was. And so I think it's important to read stories, and I, I'm happy at the end of the chapter, he tells stories of individual people. Uh, there was a farmer who was losing his house, and the police were coming to repossess it, and he had a family and shit, and he was pre- and he, it was like, I'm not giving up my house, so he, you know, started shooting at the cops and stuff, and, and it, I, you know, just a, a million stories like that of when you read, like, a depression, you know, we think of it in these abstract numbers, but what that really means is mass unimaginable suffering and and horrible suffering that people shouldn't have to go through like it's it's our failure as a species honestly i think about that with what's going on in palestine too like just all the videos of kids in rubble and people in pieces and stuff like no human being should have to why because some rich asshole needs another fucking yacht like it's it's just it's just so fucking sad and i think we can't grasp what you know the great depression was without those stories of like what happened to to individual people so i recommend reading the book just so you you know you can actually for yourself see stories like that yeah no definitely a good point there brian is cuz you know we can say numbers and all these things and stats and statistics but behind all those numbers um whether it's the 30,000 people who have been um, so far, civilian deaths in, in in Gaza right now, or Palestine in general, um, or or the folks suffering during the Great Depression, or or the folks who are struggling and as we speak with the inflation and and um, stagnant wages and, and and people working four or five jobs, or people losing their jobs, or people losing everything because they they got COVID, long COVID, and they can't work anymore because you know they have some neurological damage, and and they're you know kind of stuck or struck stuck on the street um all these numbers and data um behind that is are real people and real stories and real stories of suffering and and a lot of this is um needless suffering um because at the end of the day it's all to benefit uh to make make the lives of a small privileged few as great as possible while everybody else um the masses of people struggle and even if I'm not, you know, struggling every single day for a meal or anything like that, um, I know that my wife and I are, are not too far from being destitute ourselves. If if things if things if we have just one bad day, and we shouldn't live in a society like that, um, sometimes you're gonna fall, um, and we should live in a society and thrive for a world where if you fall, um, it's not the end of everything. Um, you can be picked back up and put back together, um, no matter who you are. Um, so, yeah, thanks for that that human component uh, because that's very true. I think uh, I think capitalism is you know of course by its nature it's like a competitive based system, and the and the people who like kind of control propaganda, 
they like really like want you to believe that that's how life has got to be is this like competitive fight to like get whatever it is you're trying to get which is why i like chapters like this that talk a lot about like all the organizing that people do and working together because if you actually study evolution like yeah there's competition but there's also cooperation and like all these other things in evolution and that's just like how life works and our whole system is just kind of really hyper-focused on this survival of the fittest mentality, which is just not reality. It, um, there was a uh, speaking of that I watched, I'll try and find the video again so we can share it on our socials, but it was a YouTube video about an hour and a half long. And it was a bunch of anthropologists talking about, um, how there was a significant time in in human history where homo sapiens lived with neanderthals and there was that other branch of human of like human humanoid apes cromagnums no i can't remember what they were called but basically there were there were three different types of like you know humans basically hominids yeah. yeah hominids living on the planet at the same time and for a while they were and were learning more and more about it and for a while you know they people scientists thought well oh humans must have been stronger or we must have been smarter it was probably our intelligence that um you know gave us the leg up and why we survived in there but what they're learning is that for one neanderthals were more physically powerful than humans so they were stronger and that they're learning they're gathering more and more evidence that the other two forms of humans were just as capable of developing tools but what they're thinking now is what set humans homo sapiens apart was our social skills that they finding that we were forming larger groups and more evidence of more complex language and things so it was actually our cooperation not our intelligence not our strength it was our ability to cooperate that gave us the leg up and allowed us to survive when the others didn't um but also then isn't the theory that also uh humans are also Speaking of cooperation, we're getting that freak on, freak well, on with the Neanderthals. Well, yeah, too. yeah, that's true too. That's true too. There's <laughs> some fucking going on there. Hey, that's another form of cooperation. All right. Exactly. You know, to take two or more to tangle. <laughs> I kind of feel like that aspect of uh, learning about evolution was almost as misleading a thing that was taught to us in school as like anything in history. Because anything I ever learned in school about evolution was like. Uh, what's his face darwin like survival of the fittest like but like the more recent evolution books that i've read it's just like a much more dynamic and in-depth like perspective of evolution where like yeah there's competition but there's also all these examples of cooperation and it's often those cooperative examples that led to like the most like emergent aspects of the evolutionary process yeah it goes back to the system being self-promoted where uh, the system wants to promote competition. So that's the part of evolution that gets taught, you know, where cooperation isn't as helpful to those who want to divide and conquer. So that mm-hmm. part gets left out. Cooperation is just socialism. Yeah. Right? Evolution <laughs> isn't socialism. It's about competition. And, and all of those are very funny about the United States. Uh, during the Gilded Age and before the um, the Great Depression, you had all these monopolies. And, and we see that what's basically... We see almost a decade, a hundred, sorry, a century later, uh, many things are repeating themselves because you have corporate conglomerates like Netflix and Disney and General Electric, which are, you know, these huge multinational companies. But their reach is far more global than, you know, the the companies of the of the yesteryear. 
but it's the same thing. It's like, oh, oh, we we're all about competition. But how can there be competition when they're when you're a monopoly, when you own fucking everything in every industry and you have your hand in every industry? There that's so even by the so called capitalist um types game, it's at a disadvantage. So why should it be monopolies? When there's monopolies, that means there's only one game in town. So you have Walmart or you have Comcast and that's it. That's one of the hilarious things about capitalism is like even by its own rules it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. Yes. <laughs> like, right. Lornette says that all the time that capitalists aren't even good at capitalism. Yeah. No, no they they never are. But you know, they'll always tell you, Well, capitalism is the is the best worst system that we have and it's just like what a what a small mind that you have where you just think that this is it. Like the hun human beings have been around that we talked about earlier, uh, for two hundred thousand years. And most in in modern capitalism, as we imagine it now and what we know of, has been around for maybe 500 or 600 years. So prior to that, um, and and let's look outside Western history, um, outside of that, humans and human groups and civilizations organize themselves in many, many different type of ways. Um, So to say that this is the end all be all and this is the pinnacle is absolute bullshit and and a lie. All right. And one more thing I wanted to mention before we end the episode um, was the bonus army march on Washington. And I think this is a good message to the the young people who may listen to this podcast who think that if you join the military that because, you know, the vet, the I think it's important to point out that, you know, the country always idolizes people in the military but then once they're done being in the military and become veterans, the system is very quick quick to throw them overboard because they're no longer use, useless to the powerful. Um, and I think this is a big example of it. Um, Howard Zinn writes, The anger of the veterans of World War I, now without work, um, family and family hunger, led to the march of Bonus Army to Washington in the spring and summer of 1932. War veterans holding government bonus certificates, which were due years in the future, demanded Congress pay off them now when the money was desperately needed. And so they began to move to Washington from all over the country with their wives, children, or by themselves. They came and broke down old automobiles, stealing rides on freight trains, or hitchhiking. There were miners from West Virginia, sheet metal workers from Columbus, Georgia, and unemployed Polish veterans from Chicago. More than 20,000 came, most camped across the Potomac River across from the Capitol. Um, the bill to pay off the, bon- the veterans uh, passed the House but was defeated in the Senate, and some veterans discouraged left. Most stayed, some encamped in government buildings near the Capitol, the rest on flats, and President Hoover ordered the army to evict them. Four troops of Calgary, four companies of infantry, a machine gun squadron, and six tanks assembled near the White House. General Douglas MacArthur was in charge of the operation, Major Dwight Eisenhower his aide. George S. Patton was one of the officers. MacArthur led his troops down Pennsylvania Avenue, used tear gas to clear out the veterans of the old buildings, and set fire to their encampments. And just for those who may not know, Douglas MacArthur, Dwight Eisenhower, and George Patton would all later be hailed as heroes of World War II. 
Um, but before they were heroes in World War II, they were tools of the government to go and suppress the movement of other veterans. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I guess if uh, the Depression is a dark time, um, it leads to some good things. Because our next episode, we get into the election of FDR and the immense pressure on him socialism and communism is really growing in the country and it's going to force him um in order to save the country and save the system has to start making concessions to working people um and so next episode should be pretty fun talking about um a time in american history where the the (laughs) the government was actually starting to get afraid of its people and uh making actually some good progress uh, that eventually build to the middle class and the civil rights movement and things in the 1950s and 60s. Well, maybe we need to make that America again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a government that the government should not people should not fear the government. The government should fear the people. So I think that's ultimately better. Like uh, people talking about revolutions talk about taking power back, but it's like almost more about making just power afraid of you so that they basically do the things you want to do yeah absolutely anything else you guys want to add before we go nope i'll take the power back (laughs) (laughs) and and also this 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 one thing i want to add so have we been talking about these chapters uh we see history um not not necessarily repeats itself but definitely goes in cycles and we see the same cycles um almost exactly the same cycles almost a decade later so um the thing is, is those who are um, those who um, are destined to repeat history um, are those who don't understand history. So we got to understand history so we don't repeat the same mistakes of the past. And I think the problem with, with, with our society is we don't learn our history. So we keep seeing the same cycles over and over again. And these cycles can be broken and are broken at times. Um, but that takes the due diligence of lots of people and consciousness raising and also um, fighting against reactionary forces. So just kind of we have to keep that in mind. And that, and that's kind of why we do what we do. And we know we don't have like millions of listeners or anything like that. Um, but we're just we're just a bunch of regular guys uh, just, you know, using our voice to, um, in our position in our lot in life to, um, you know, make sure that, hey, a, another world is possible. Um, so to the young people out there on the streets, protesting um the genocide and the gaza inequality um all that um power more power to you um and and definitely learn history uh so we won't repeat it yeah the whole point the whole reason i wanted to do we wanted to do these history edition episodes is because you know we have our normal question culture podcast where we talk about political and science and the only reason i have the beliefs i do and they tend to go against the grain and aren't necessarily popular opinions is because I have read our history, um, and whereas a lot of Americans haven't. And so I, I think more Americans need this perspective of history so that we don't repeat these mistakes, like Lornette said. So, you know, and, and yeah, just like you said, we don't have a lot of, you know, a shit ton of listeners like some podcasts, but I'll say it to anyone that listens. I'll keep saying it, even if nobody's listening, because, yeah, we're, we're just, and and I see, it's interesting, you know, no, no one knows what the future will bring. The, the the pendulum can swing either way. And I see very positive things going on in the country right now. And I see very negative things going on. Um, so hopefully we can all communicate. We got cooperation. We all have to, you know, if, if we're not fighting each other, then we're talking to each other. So there's power in your voice. 
um, to change things. So that's really what it's all about. So uh, thank you for that, Lornette. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Q Culture, Q-U-E-C-U-L-T-U-R-E. There we share the links to the information about the topics we discuss on, discuss on the podcast. You can also visit Lornette's blog, The Evolving Man Project, where he talks about things on question culture and more. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give it a like or uh, you know a review, whatever you can to help us get noticed. We don't really do any kind of marketing or advertising. So uh, any help uh, spreading the word would be appreciated. Thanks again for listening, and remember to question everything. Everything. Any views or opinions expressed on this podcast belong solely to Brian Lornette and Steve and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that Brian, Lornette, and Steve may or may not be associated with in any professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.